0: Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Elaine Lindsay's mission, end the silence, stigma, and shame surrounding suicide, ideation, and mental health. Sharing your burden can lighten the load. Elaine says, we must normalize the conversation to make it easier for you to voice your pain and be able to ask for help. Reaching out to any other human being when you're in need of a listening ear must become the norm. Now, please note the Suicide Zen Forgiveness podcast is for education only. Some of this subject matter could be triggering for those of you that are either grieving or having mental health problems. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Today's guest is Jacqueline Gee. She was born and raised in Ontario, Canada, and she's always been a mental health advocate and mentor. She is the founder and creator of the Doom to Bloom podcast. There, Jacqueline shares her journey of mental health struggles and her experiences with trauma and addiction, alongside the guests she has who also share their experiences. As Jacqueline is active in the social services field, specifically with the vulnerable populations struggling with homelessness, addictions, mental health, and legal involvement, she provides tactical tips and techniques to support both yourself and others during these struggles, as well as education around these stigmatized and taboo topics. Jacqueline is passionate about raising awareness of mental health, trauma and addiction, as well as continuing to fight to break down the stigma surrounding these topics. And it's wonderful today to be able to present to you my guest, Jacqueline Gee. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thank
1: you for having me. It's an honor to be on your podcast and this is only my second time guesting. So I'm quite honored to be the chosen one as well.
0: I already think you're lovely. So I think that's going to be pretty easy peasy. Thank
1: you. (laughs) You're very
0: welcome. So. Our podcast, Suicides and Forgiveness, is about suicide loss, ideation, and mental health. And we have dealt with depression, anxiety, addiction, all of those things over the past few years, because these are the things that affect the people in and around us and the people that we work with. Which brings me to what you do for a living, which I think is absolutely incredible. I believe you told me you work with the homeless in Mm -hmm. housing them, and that's a pretty noble job. But it's not where you started, is it?
1: It's not. I actually started with my own struggles, and that's what led me to different pathways, which ultimately led me into the social
0: sciences, social service field. Right. you you told me that you started with mental health issues early
1: on. Yes, yeah, as far back as I can remember. So I my memory is vague here and there, but from what I remember it started in grade one, okay. which would be what are you, grade one would be five or six years old. Yeah. So I always remember being that kid that always seemed to be different. And I, I think back then it was wrong. quotes to be different yeah and so I always was worried about what if my hair doesn't look the right way what if my coat makes me look funny what if I say the wrong thing what if the outfit doesn't look right and other people judge so it was what I now know to be anxiety but back then I didn't know right so that was the really big red flag if you will for when it started and then through the years it went into further anxiety and again at the time i didn't know that's what i was struggling with and then after i started getting a bit older started being more vocal understanding kind of what was going on what was happening in the world in my world i ended up in grade eight being sexually assaulted which led me to a that was the official diagnosis of anxiety at that point and also an official diagnosis of depression specifically severe depression and then partnered with that i also have seasonal affective disorder Uh so it's depression but in the colder gloomier months if those that are listening don't know and then from there i started medication and my doctor at the time when i was in grade eight wanted me to start therapy so i started therapy for the first time which I didn't know what to expect and the, it was just very overwhelming, I think for a 14 year old yeah, and just hard because I, what I knew was normal for me and not what I thought others didn't experience. So it was hard for me to put into words how I felt because I thought everybody else felt that way. And the doctor, or sorry, the therapist at the time didn't really validate that or speak to that really. Maybe didn't understand it. Maybe. Yeah. That's very possible and possibly because she didn't feel that way. So she didn't understand, not totally sure, but I didn't really feel validated. Um, It almost made me feel more different, more kind of out there, I guess, if you will. And so going into the summer of grade nine, I was sexually assaulted again by a different individual. And so that kind of, enhanced and accelerated the depression and anxiety on top of kind of at that time where all the hormones are happening and you're trying to fit in, you're trying to adjust to how your body's changing and mood swings and all of that at the same time. So needless to say, the start of high school was a bit rough um, for me. And at the time of the sexual assault, the second time, I'll try not to get into too much details, but I vividly remember him saying, you're gonna have to do this with other people So you may as well do it now and get used to it and be good at it so that others like you was the gist of what I was told at the time. And so that led me into a, well, if I feel weird in my body or I think this is different or I feel this way but others might not, it led me down a path of needing to control something and I couldn't really control much as a 14, 15 year old. So that's when I started developing an eating disorder which again, at the time I didn't know, wasn't eating disorder right. based on just the time frame. So I ended up really focusing on my weight. I was just essentially starving myself, oh. trying to look the certain way, feel the certain way. Mm-hmm. His words haunted me and in the way of if you don't look this way, then others might not want you, but I want you now. So continue to do it. Ah. And so I was always. Struggling with my hair color because it's orange was always a ha, laugh at you thing back then because orange hair. I struggled with acne, with hormones, and just that time of time in the life cycle. I just really struggled and ended up turning to controlling my food, controlling my diet, controlling exercise, over-exercised, under-8, severely. The following year, I was diagnosed with anorexia. Wow which I am happy to say I'm in recovery for the last probably five, six years now, but at the time was very scary. I ended up doing a lot of doctor's appointments and therapy and medications and a whole bunch of just medical appointments. And alongside that, because again, the doctors and the therapists were trying to take away the only control I felt I had at the time, I turned to something else that I could control, which was self-harm. And so I hid that for a really long time until the therapist and the doctor I was working with for my eating concerns ended up asking me questions and I just broke. And keep in mind, I was, I think, 16 at the time. So I wasn't really sharing much or talking about much, just very closed off. And so they ended up asking me and I broke down. I said, yeah, I am. This is how I do it. This is where I do it. This is why I do it. And they ended up bringing in my mom and my dad for therapy sessions with me and mm-hmm. i don't really remember my dad's response other than he cried a lot but then i remember my mom which i don't think was her intention but when she was in the session with us she more or less said this is stupid like just deal with what you're thinking and carry on like why are you doing this it's ridiculous stop and again at the time that was what i was my release, my outlet, but also what I could control because nothing else was in my control. So our relationship was really rocky at that point. And then into the rest of high school, I got in with the wrong crowd a little bit, went to a lot of parties, did a lot of drinking, which to society nowadays is the normal. Um, but wasn't normal for me. It was very out of character. Again, it was something I could control and it helped me feel more normal, whatever normal is. I I felt less anxious, less depressed. I was more social. I had the energy. I was more of a people person at that point. Okay. And then flash forward a couple more years to when I was in grade 12, I was prepping to go to university. And again, that's a whole other time in people's lives where there's like yeah. a lot of transition and usually anxiety, usually fear, nerves, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I was accepted to the universities I wanted. I picked it. And I remember breaking down with my mom actually. She went to an open house with me and I said I don't want to be at university. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to live with random strangers. And I think part of that was the sexual assaults that happened. Absolutely. Because I had no trust in people. And then just before graduation, so we typically graduate in June, in the summer. And so in December of that year, that was when I experienced a loss of a really good friend through murder. And so I won't go into detail on that one, but that's what kickstarted me into really wanting to go to university or college, just post-secondary in general. And because it was a murder, it was obviously a criminal offense. There was court proceedings and charges and all the right. Yeah. And so that led me into wanting to understand the legal system, the justice system, why this might have happened, how they should have prevented it, just like the effects and how the charges are going to be dealt with, Why, yeah. why they're only charged with this and not this, and yeah. just all of the details, which there was a lot because it's the court system and there's always a lot. Yeah. So I remember skipping a lot of university in I don't remember the year, but it was March. And I remember skipping a lot of university to go sit in the trial in the courthouse. Ah. And so it was about two or three weeks long, if I remember correctly. And I thought going would give a sense of closure <laughs> and I guess in some ways it did because it was the end. Justice was served. He was charged. Good. Go but on the other hand, it didn't because then I heard more gruesome details. I saw the pictures of what had happened and all of that. So that kind of stays in the back of my mind today. Yeah. But flash forward to university, I studied social work and law. A couple of changes in between majors and minors and all of that, but At the end of it, I ended up graduating with social work and a minor in law. And throughout the career at university, there was a bunch of different psychology classes and sociology classes and legal classes and court classes and all kinds of things. And so when I finished university, I had the same question everybody has, what am I gonna do with my life? How can I make a difference? Where am I going? I'm now 21, 22 and I'm like, what the heck is my purpose? I just spent all of these thousands of dollars. What's going to come out of it? And so I actually ended up getting hired at a social service agency just outside of my hometown. And i that was when I started working with the vulnerable population in terms of legal involvement and mental health and addiction. And so I worked in a program there for two years. Didn't really like it. Didn't hate it. But it just wasn't my forte. Yeah. So I actually switched programs in the same company two years ago. And so now that's how I'm the housing worker that I am working with the unhoused, unsheltered, those coming out of incarceration, coming out of hospital stays. A lot of times they're in psychiatric ward right. so they're coming out. And I don't know about where you are, but up here in Ontario, Canada, the market for rentals and buying is insane. And so it's really hard to get housing in general, but then it's also harder to get housing for somebody when there's such a stigma. Yes. And the stereotype with what comes along with legal involvement and being homeless and mental health and addiction and kind of all of that. That's the role that I'm in now based on all of my experiences.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna stop you for a minute because a couple of things I want to acknowledge that are really important. You took a terrible situation and could have crumbled and just crawled into you. And instead, you looked at a way to find solutions by going to university to study law. Mm-hmm. Like that, bravo for that because not everybody does that not everybody gets past these tragedies in their life in a productive way so for all that you went through for all that you had issues that you felt and and you felt being different i have to say that's incredible that you followed through and moving on into social work, I think is so incredibly important because having that law background gives you better insight into why the law is the way it is and how it is. And actually I'm in Ottawa, Canada.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. So I totally know. And I actually grew up in Toronto. Okay. Okay, when we came to Canada, and I lived in Ottawa for a very short time, and we moved to Toronto, so I did my grade school in Toronto, I understand what it's like right now with pricing, and the stigma of trying to get a job when you are labeled mentally ill, or when you have come out of incarceration, it is definitely not easy. And I have friends in Toronto that work with City Outreach and a few other different groups that deal with unhoused uh, peoples and making sure that they have basic necessities and try to do what they can because ideally we should all be involved.
1: I think in an ideal world, yes, but I think that there's so much... What you do incredibly is breaking down the stigma, but I think there's so much stigma and yeah. shame yeah. and guilt and stereotypes around just the population I work with, let alone. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like there's this. So for example, this is like the really big stigma, right? And yeah. then inside of this big stigma is small ones of mental health and addiction and legal involvement. And then there's all the government systems that we have to work through that don't, really help us I always tend to joke at work which isn't a joking matter but it's the way that I shed light to it is that we're jumping through all of these hoops and all of these barriers at work and it's not just a barrier of getting ID or getting a pardon or getting medical treatment or mental health treatment it's the barrier to do but it's also on fire and it's moving and it's not just a small barrier it's a huge barrier yeah
0: and and quite often we do find with mental health issues some of our unhoused population are absolutely against being housed Mm -hmm. it is really hard for these people and as much as toronto is cold ottawa is horrifically cold we're the second coldest capital in the world So our unhoused population are at very high risk in winter Mm -hmm. and it, it really, it is sad that we can't do something because I don't care whether you're in Toronto or Ottawa or Calgary or wherever. There are a lot of buildings that are empty. A lot. And that makes no sense to me. But I understand an awful lot of the stigma and the shame and silence comes from the different generations mm-hmm. because we weren't allowed to talk about mental health we weren't allowed to talk about there wasn't a word for anorexia okay in, in my generation we didn't have that And if someone in your family was mentally ill, you better not take that outside the door. Because as I've said before on this show, there were songs that talked about, ha he, they're taking you off to the funny farm. Mm -hmm. Those were on the radio as pop hits it was a very different time. And you will find, I know a lot of our unhoused population are older individuals. Mm -hmm. So they have all that to contend with as well.
1: I think there's also just, you're absolutely right, but there's also so many other layers to being unhoused. And a lot of people personally that I know, even outside of work, because, Majority of the people that work in a social service agency with this population understand it. They know the root causes. They know what's underlying. They know all of that stuff. But I think for more of the general population, there's a lot of people in my personal life that say that they did it to themselves. Yeah. Or, yeah. And or that they are using substances because they want to. Yeah. And that's what caused them to be unhoused and therefore it's their fault or they left their partner lost their money therefore it's their fault yeah. right there's the it, it just it continually shows as a it's their fault yeah. and yeah. maybe sometimes in small cases it might be realistically it's a lot of system flaws and system yeah. failures and a lot of us are products of the failed legal system the failed mental yeah. health system foster care all of those lead towards that. But oftentimes that's not really talked about. It's more just talked about how John started using substances when he was 16, became addicted and couldn't stop. And therefore now at 43, he's unhoused and it's his fault. Yeah. And nothing else matters except for that. He did it to himself. And that's just simply not the case. I hear that quite often.
0: Oh my God.
1: Or the other thing I hear which just infuriates me is that why don't they just get a job yeah how love that how how do you expect somebody who's unhoused doesn't know where they're gonna lay their head at night doesn't know if they're gonna get a meal doesn't know if they're gonna have a shower or clean clothes but yet you expect them to turn around and go get a job who's gonna hire somebody that may not be super hygienic Yeah, who, who may not have slept that night who may have substance use struggles because they're on the streets or if they have a legal record, that's just another barrier. So how can they just get a job? Yeah,
0: It becomes a vicious cycle. (laughs) It's so infuriating. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be. And for a fact right now, the job market is not easy.
1: Mm
0: -mm. After COVID things have changed an awful lot and you can be the best dressed person on the planet with all kinds of expertise, it does not guarantee you a job. Yeah, what chance does someone who is unhoused and, and perhaps not the cleanest person around and, and no fault of their own, if you don't have a bathroom, it's a little hard to have a shower.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's only one of the yeah. potential barriers, right? You yeah. partner somebody being unhoused, maybe on social assistance with an addiction struggle yeah. and maybe a mental health diagnosis. How are they possibly going to just snap their fingers and go to work? Yeah, There's yeah. so much more that underlies that needs to get yeah worked through. And that's where I think a lot of the conversations nowadays that I'm seeing at work are happening around all of that, where it's not just as simple as, Oh, you don't want to live on the street anymore okay go get a job or yeah right or go put in a rental application it's not that simple or everybody would no. be doing it yeah so there's a lot more professional conversations i think that are happening in social services about that but there's still a, so far to go so far to go
0: So i think we have to stretch the borders it's not just social services that have to mm-hmm. be involved i think big corporations have to become involved in trying to help be the solution
1: Mm -hmm. definitely but i think that's also where the maybe the judgment or the stigma also comes in where people just assume it's so-and-so did it to themselves so they can get themselves out but actually involves the government for all the housing stuff yeah but also the government for financial supports and I also know. the government for potential pardons or court processes or whatever that looks like yeah. and then it also goes to speak about like food security
0: oh well, my god you don't yeah.
1: just get that and especially now with inflation being how it is yeah. it's hard for the general working population to be able to afford yeah to live not even I'm going to say nicely, but just to get by, to imagine somebody somebody on social assistance, that's that much harder.
0: Yeah. I, the past two years, I I don't think it's a joke, but I would joke with friends that you had to be really quick when you went into a big grocery store, because between one aisle, aisle one and aisle 10, if you weren't quick enough, the prices were going up a buck Mm -hmm. on every item. Because that's really what's happening. And now we're finding, I don't know what it's like where you are, but now we're finding that um, they're installing all these security gates and all kinds of stuff to stop uh, their their bleeding through loss. Perhaps if you didn't raise the prices of food so much, people wouldn't have to try and steal food. And I think
1: that kind of relates to shelter too, right? In the sense that... For example in London, Ontario, which is where I work out of, there is bachelor's and one bedrooms. When I first started this role 2 years ago, it would be somewhere between 900 and 1100 dollars a month, Canadian. Wow. Now, when I'm on the housing search, which happens daily, bachelor's now and one bedrooms go from anywhere from like 1200 to 1900. Yeah. that's absurd and then two bedrooms are like two grand to three grand and it just continues to go up and then those abandoned buildings that you were talking about in an ideal world they could be turned into apartments that are somewhat affordable but instead if a contractor or a company is going to come in and take ownership of that building chances are they're likely going to knock it down build from the ground up and then charge double the rent that they could if they had just fixed up the building.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's where there, there has to be some way to at least start a, a stopgap program where mm-hmm. if you know that these buildings are, because some of them have been empty for two, three, four years, give the cities a way to utilize those buildings, not necessarily outfit them totally, but make them habitable For those up to four years. So at least people have somewhere to start. Once you can get on your feet, then you can progress.
1: Mm -hmm. Or even just a shelter. Yeah. Just a crash bed site instead of the streets because winter's coming, cold weather's coming.
0: Yeah. And we're going to be talking Celsius here, but it gets minus 40 here.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. That is not fit for any human. And, and we have lost people on the streets.
1: We've lost a lot, yeah. and those are always the ones that fall in between the gaps yeah. of the systems that are just, to, to the general population and to government systems and systems in general, they're just another person, another number. Yeah. But then to those of us that are supporting, it's a person, it's a human, yeah. and it's a loss.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually saw something, it might have been either Friday or Monday on Facebook, a friend posted an idea that somebody had, and I'm sorry, I can't attribute to the right person, but they're putting together mid-size freezer bags or the large freezer bags with socks, mitts, toques, toothpaste little items that people can use and either a Tim's card or something where they can get hot coffee or a meal and people are putting them in their cars so when you get to an area where there are unhoused people you can be helpful Mm -hmm. and you know if somebody just if people just did that and even if you gave away one a week it would really help.
1: I actually have an experience with that, if you're okay, that I shared that. Yes, please. So I often, especially in the colder months, but just in general, I will often ask anybody in my personal life if they have anything to donate. And so typically what they give is blankets or tents or just clothing, men's clothing, women's clothing, unisex, whatever it is. And honestly, I usually keep it in my trunk of my vehicle. And then when I see people out on the street, if I'm not supporting somebody that's on my caseload, oftentimes I will open the trunk up and people will just flock to me. And I'll say, take as much as you need, take as little as you need, but take something. And so I actually did this, I think it was last week. I was on my phone at work, sending a couple emails and waiting for a client on my caseload. And I parked at a variety store and it's kind of downtown London. So the shelter's there and it's very noticeably that there's a lot of unhoused in that area. So I opened my trunk up and people, I think there was probably eight or nine people that came to me and they're like, I only need one shirt or I only need one pair of pants. Like, I don't want to take too much. There's lots of others. And I'm like, but if you need maybe two pairs of pants to at least alternate them, if you need a blanket, like seriously, just take it. And a lot of them were teary-eyed because they're like, yeah. you're, you're just giving us clothing or blankets. And in my head, I always rationalize it that it's survival.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like,
1: I'm helping in a sense, but my point in doing so is to try to ensure that they stay alive through the winter, yeah. whether I know them or not.
0: Yeah, it's got nothing to do with whether we know them. We have always donated to the mission here. And I will collect from neighbors in Pat Smith's tukes, whatever. But for the past few years here in Ottawa, and I I know that it's in other cities as well, people will tie scarves and put tukes on the trees downtown so that anyone can take one if they need it. Because you never know when it's going to snow or if you'll be there in time for someone. And I think anything we can do to help out is better than doing nothing.
1: I've, I definitely agree, but I find that there's a struggle in getting others to be at the point where we're at, where we're just willing to give a shirt, give a sock, give a blanket, whatever it is we can give. I find that yeah. there's a lot of people who aren't at that point, And it's often because they, again, it goes back to the stigma and the stereotype of they did it to themselves, or yeah. they want to be this way in air quotes, or they choose to live this way, they choose to yeah. use substance, yeah. whatever it is. And so I feel like there's a lot of people that would walk down the street and notice the unhoused but would purposely avoid giving them anything because they think it's their own doing.
0: Absolutely, and I say to those people, I'm not suggesting you give people money if that's a problem for you,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: okay? I came from a dinner with friends, didn't eat my dinner, and it was all packaged. It wasn't like stuff I'd bitten or anything. It was like a whole chicken breast and different things. And I was coming down the street towards the highway. And there was a gentleman on the median that was approaching the cars. I didn't have any cash in my car. And I looked down, I said, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be rude, but are you hungry? Because if, there's a chicken breast in here and veggies. And he said, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I wasn't trying to be rude. And I wouldn't have done it if it was something I had, you know, been eating Mm -hmm. but if you don't want to give money then if you're stopping for fast food or whatever buy an extra burger and give it to somebody it's not it it doesn't cost you an awful lot but it gives an awful lot
1: Mm -hmm. the the other example i have of that is i was getting lunch one day at work And so I went through, I don't remember what restaurant, but it was a, it was a drive through. And there was a gentleman who was very unhygienic, clearly unhoused, was clearly struggling, was hungry, was thirsty. And I pulled into the the parking lot and I sat there for a couple minutes and I just observed and was in my head wondering, okay, how many people are gonna help? Are people gonna help? What are they gonna do? And. I think I counted probably 10 to 12 cars, not a single one of them gave anything. And by anything, like a gift card, money, fries, a burger, a drink, yeah. a gift card, nothing. And so when I pulled up, he, I was like, hey, sir, I want to help you. What can I get for you? And he didn't approach me. He didn't talk to me because he didn't think I was talking to him. Yeah. And so in the middle of the drive-thru, I got out of my car and I said, I want to buy you something. What can I get you? Yeah. He started crying because he's, you're the only person all day today that has been generous enough to offer anything. And he's, I don't want to ask for much. So I'm just going to ask for a coffee. And I'm like, no, tell me the last time you ate. Yeah. Tell me the last time you had something in your stomach that was actually beneficial for you. Yeah. And he's, I couldn't tell you. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to get you a meal and I'm going to get you some snacks and I'll get you a coffee. And That was life-changing for him that day Yeah, yeah and the other piece that i wanted to note for the part on giving money this is just my educated unpopular opinion i'll i'll say
0: okay
1: when i see people especially in my personal life they notice the unhoused almost immediately because they're an eyesore and they're whatever people describe them as but I've noticed so many times there's a lot of conversations around why would you ever give them money? They're just going to go use a substance or go do this or go do that. And my argument to that always is it's none of your business what they go to use it for. And if they do use that $5, that $10 for a gram of whatever substance, meth or fentanyl or cocaine, maybe that's all that they need that day to be able to get through the withdrawal or maybe that's all they need to be able to get through another cold minus 20 degree weather night i always fight back and argue back on that because it's always maybe they are actually going to use that five dollars for a coffee or maybe they're going to use it for a pair of mitts or a hat but also if they use it for substance know that it's probably what they need at that time to get through
0: my suggestion for the food was because that's exactly what we hear all the time is I don't want to do that because my my mom and dad had a habit of when they were downtown, if there was someone that was lacking, they would take them into the nearest coffee shop or McDonald's or what have you and buy them something because they're o- older people and They didn't believe in substances they watched their daughter be a little um, crazy as a teenager so that was not something they could handle yet they could not handle not doing something
1: i think that also is really worthy of just noting that your parents generation because a lot of older folks don't understand all of these new societal issues but i think it's worth noting that your parents despite maybe understanding or not, they still did what they could with what they had at the time.
0: Absolutely. And we came to this country with nothing because instead of bringing our furnishings, my father chose to bring my grandmother and my aunt because they were family. But my mother never allowed someone to spend Christmas or Easter or any holiday alone. There was always somebody at our table that came from who knows where. And we grew up that way. And my son and his wife now they do Thanksgiving, they do Christmas, they do Easter, and there are always other people at the table.
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. And
1: that's working to break the cycle of what generations before us have
0: taught. Yeah.
1: In the best possible way
0: my my parents came from nothing and so i think they were so grateful for what they had they believed in in sharing their bounty whatever that might be
1: i think more people need to follow along with that yeah however they can with whatever they have not saying give out absolutely lots of money or give out every blanket you own or every Tent you own or whatever that looks like, just give what you can or do what you can. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I've noticed too, like with a lot of the unhoused in London in my area, a simple conversation. Yes. When, Hi, I see you. I recognize that you're struggling, and I'm so sorry you're in this spot. If there's anything you can think of that I can help with, food or money or something else, even please yeah. let me know. But oftentimes, if somebody's not asking you for money or clothing or blankets or food that conversation just goes a long way because how yeah. many people walk by them every single day yes. make comments like clean up your mess clean up your tent get out of here oh. rather than somebody getting down on their level and saying I see you yeah. it validates the struggle
0: you don't know this but this is something I've been doing for a long time I keep asking people, I want everybody to step up and give you a listen to someone you do not know, which could be a person on the street, it could be a person in a hospital waiting room, it could be wherever, but listen to them. Give them 10 minutes of your time to let them see that they're seen and they're heard. And a very good friend said to me that we have two ears, two shoulders, one mouth, use it in proportion. It's important to let people know that they are seen and heard. And you never ever know what people can tell you. There's always something to learn.
1: I'm a firm believer in to an extent, I guess I should say, that everything happens for a reason. I f- firmly believe that if I were to notice, for example, three youth on a street somewhere unhoused, I firmly believe that I saw them for a reason to go approach them and see how I can support. It doesn't mean I'm going to change their unhoused situation right then and there, but I can do something to make it a little more bearable. And I firmly believe that with every conversation every day anybody i interact with there was a reason for it whether they were professionally giving me support in going through a barrier or whether it was personally to put a smile on my face to put a smile on theirs i truly believe that there was a reason for every interaction and we won't know what that reason is unless we have it
0: just like you're saying yeah absolutely that was beautiful i have a sense of Talking to you was really lovely. I both respect and honor what you do for a living, and it takes a great deal of strength to help shoulder other people's burdens. So I really hope you acknowledge and value that you do that for others.
1: I, I definitely kind of acknowledge that I do do that for others, and I think, kind of the overarching goal, the the bigger reason, my why that I do that is so that I remember the five-year-old Jacqueline, the 16-year-old Jacqueline, the 21-year-old Jacqueline that was struggling day in and day out, didn't know where I was going, who I was going to see, if I was going to get a job, if I was going to get out of bed that day, if I was going to shower, if I was going to eat, or if I was going to pass away from anorexia. I had no idea, but I always look back at, younger me through the years and there's several decades for me to look at unfortunately of struggle but i always look at those thinking if younger me at 16 felt this way how do 16 year olds nowadays feel yeah or 12 year old me felt this way 15 years ago what does a 12 year old now experience because the world is so different oh my god so i just always like the idea that i help how i can when i can where I can in whatever capacity that means. And truthfully, my goal is just to help others feel less alone because I know when I was growing up, I felt nothing but alone and it's a crappy situation to feel. And it's not a great feeling to feel. So if I can help others, maybe even less than that feeling of being alone, then I've
0: been successful that day. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. My guest Jacqueline G has you've heard for yourself, I am quite honored to have spent this time with you and everyone will be able to find her information on the page below with the transcript if you happen to be in the London area and even if you're not, remember that the unhoused people that you see around you are people too and everybody can use a hand up or even just to listen. Thanks very much. I'm Elaine Lundy. This is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And until next time, make the very best of your today, every day. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Croon, the motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City.